From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that brings you true stories from the lives of veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Our guest today is Kayla Williams, Army veteran and author of the memoirs, Love My Rifle More Than You and Plenty of Time When We Get Home. Kayla first served as a linguist and then intelligence specialist during and after the invasion of Iraq, earning the prestige of having been the most forward deployed female service member of the war at the time. As an author and activist, Kayla has not only detailed the experiences of her fellow soldiers, which include her husband's struggle with a traumatic brain injury, but also of the Iraqi people. She's been a consistent advocate for the most vulnerable and doesn't hesitate to shine a light on the injustices they face both abroad and at home. And you'll get to meet her right after this. KPBS On Demand is brought to you by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2021 Camry with an available 301 horsepower V6 engine. To learn more, visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Justin Hudnall. Welcome back to Incoming and our guest today, author and Army veteran Kayla Williams. One of the things I love about Kayla's writing and something I respect so much about her as a thinker is how she is willing to point to a truth no matter how inconvenient it might be. It's been a habit that by turns has led to people accusing her of being a staunch liberal and others of being a pro-war apologist. But her truths, like most truths, are complicated. And the way she unpacks them through scenes and conversations make the experience of exploring them with her a real pleasure. So without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Ms. Kayla Williams. My name is Kayla Williams, and I'm reading a selection from Love My Rifle More Than You. When my tour was coming to an end, I got my truck back and had two soldiers under me while we drove all the way from Mosul to Kuwait. We had major mechanical problems with our truck. We had no lights and our radios were down. At night, I clipped a little flashlight to my sleeve and when I had to brake, I'd stick my little light out the window so the truck behind me could see me. That was my brake light. The only communication we had was a handheld Motorola with which we could speak with the truck in front of us that also had a handheld Motorola. So the only radios we had were radios we'd purchased with our own money. The entire drive was basically horrible, but once it was over, it was great. At the end, there came the moment when we finally saw the berm that separated Iraq from Kuwait. As my first sergeant would say, seeing the berm was a significant emotional event. He liked to say, there are going to be a lot of significant emotional events for people here. I also thought of that phrase, the day I washed out Lot's bloody gear, the day Behringer died, and I thought of it again then. It was exactly that, a significant emotional event. We crossed the berm. We survived. We made it out of Iraq alive. A couple of miles past the berm, we stopped to refuel, and we took off our flak vest. From that point on, we could drive around without those hot things on. That, too, was a significant emotional event. Guys were lighting cigars, a lot of people were taking pictures, people were hugging. We spent the next two or three weeks in Kuwait at an established U.S. Army base, time to decompress that was very important. We cleaned our trucks and cleaned our equipment, got everything packed and ready to go on the ships. But we also got to go shopping for souvenirs and wander around and get donuts, Chinese food, pizza, drink near beer, use the phone, check our email. We were able to do pseudo-American things for a little while. During this time in Kuwait, we were also not allowed to carry around a weapon. I spent nearly the entire time in Kuwait reaching for my carbine no matter where I was. I'd get up from the chow hall in a frantic panic, afraid I'd lost it. I came home on February 8, 2004. It was snowing lightly at Fort Campbell. It had been almost exactly one year since I'd been here, and it had been snowing when I left. Small, sharp flakes that stung the face. I had a surreal moment of feeling like I'd never left, that it had all been a sick dream or as if somehow I had just lost a whole year of my life. There had been this gap in the normal passage of time, and then it fitfully resumed right where it had left off. The night I got home, I got in touch with Shane Kelly. 
He had returned to Fort Campbell in January after three months at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And after that first night, we hung out together all the time. I was incredibly happy to be back in America, but for the longest time, I did not want to be around non-Army people. And I kept having feelings of wanting to be back there. When you come home, you spend a lot of time talking about how you want to get back to Iraq. You feel this guilt for not being with your brothers, for not being with your people, other people in your unit. You feel like you're still supposed to be there. You're not done. I remembered that when I spoke to anybody who took mid-tour leave, they'd expressed similar feelings, and now I felt them too. There was culture shock. Everyone in America was fat. Everyone was on some stupid diet. How could a diet encourage you to eat bacon and forbid you to eat bananas? It made no sense to me. I felt like people didn't understand anything. They were selfish and didn't appreciate what they had. I came home and the only things people were interested in were things just beyond my comprehension. Who cared about Jennifer Lopez? How was it that I was watching CNN one morning and there was a story about freaking ducklings being fished out of a damn sewer drain while the story of soldiers getting killed in Iraq got relegated to this little banner across the bottom of the screen? Ducklings getting pulled out of a sewer? How was this important to our country? I was not understanding what was going on. I was not grasping anything. How was I willing to go and die for these freaking people who wear sweatshirts with little kittens on them? Or these people with sequins who bump into me with their carts at the supermarket and then look at me like I'm the asshole? It's a very strange country we live in. I felt thoroughly out of place. I felt this jarring sense of I do not belong here. Soon after my return, I visited my father and stepmother in North Carolina. The big talk on their block was the glorified mobile home that was being put up in their gated community. The neighbors were up in arms over this. Oh my God, the world is coming to an end. This prefab home does not meet the ideal standards of life in the community. Everyone was aghast. What about property values? I thought, who are you people? You people are all rich. You have electricity. You have phones. I just came back from a place where people wanted my cardboard boxes for flooring. What the hell is wrong with you? My parents were supportive, they were fine. But everywhere we went, it was always the same. This is my daughter. She just got back from Iraq. Oh, thank you, thank you. And then it was always the same question. What was it like? I understood people were saying this to be nice, but what could I say? What was I supposed to say? Well, while I was in Mosul, this sergeant major and his driver got pulled out of their vehicle by a mob and their bodies were literally torn apart. So how's your year been? What am I supposed to say? Oh yeah, I watched a guy bleed to death and I smelled burning shit all the time. It was super. I didn't know how to deal with people. Kayla Williams, thank you so much for joining us on Incoming. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start us off by telling us where you were in life and what factors drove you to join the service? So I do everything a little bit backwards. I had already been to undergrad. I got a degree in English literature and was working in the nonprofit sector. I was actually doing fundraising for uh, public TV and radio stations. And uh, looking back over my life, I grew up in a family of very modest means. My mom was on and off food stamps when I was a kid. I knew that society had invested in me. I was ambitious. I wanted to go on to graduate school and did not know how I was going to pay for it. I also wanted a challenge. Uh, getting a degree in literature, they gave me a college degree for reading books, which is what I do for fun. So I felt like I kind of cheated in that front. So when I lost my job and was trying to figure out what to do next, all of those factors kind of coalesced and drove me towards military service. The Army offered the GI Bill to help me go to graduate school. They were willing to pay me to learn a foreign language, which I thought was really awesome. It was a way for me to truly challenge myself and step outside of my comfort zone, get out of the rut that I was digging for myself, doing what I thought was expected and what I was supposed to do instead of what I deeply wanted to do was a way for me to repay society uh, for investing in me when I was a kid. So all those little factors came together to drive me towards military service. It wasn't just one thing. And from foreign language school, you were assigned to airborne during the initial invasion in Iraq, right? 
So after I went to the Defense Language Institute to learn Arabic, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault, which uh, is it's not an airborne unit like the 82nd. Um, they're supposed to do like air assault operations with helicopters, but we did not, in fact, go into Iraq that way. We, we drove. So I drove from Kuwait all the way up to Baghdad and then from Baghdad out to Mosul and beyond. Can you tell us about that time, that, that, what that moment was like crossing the berm in that direction? Yeah, so this was in March of 2003, and it feels so long ago. I mean, I guess it is a really long time ago now. And first, there was this sense of relief to finally get started. The waiting and waiting in Kuwait had really worn on us, and it was it seemed better to go to war than to keep waiting around. And one of the things that I feel like people have forgotten at this remove is that in those very, very early stages of the deployment um, into Iraq itself, um, there were people who greeted us as liberators. Little girls gave us flowers. The types of people who were willing to come up and talk to me as a woman who served in the U.S. military all had stories about how they had suffered under the Ba'ath regime and Saddam Hussein. And they were really hopeful for a better future, a better democratic future for Iraq. It was incredibly hard to then watch that turn as we were unable to provide the security and basic services that folks needed for their daily lives. So watching the initial hopefulness curdle into anger and develop later into an insurgency was was really heartbreaking. One of the things you said to me that I found really interesting in, in your kind of frustration or desperation or however you'd like to characterize it in your own words when you're dealing with the Iraqi population and watching their expectations kind of plummet was this was around the time of Hurricane Katrina. And I just found that so interesting and what what that must have been like in your head about the perception of of what you were doing, if you could, you know, walk me through that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, while we were in Iraq and the the Iraqi people were so frustrated. Uh, eventually, I heard some folks start referring to it as man on the moon syndrome. They would say, you Americans put a man on the moon. Why can't you get our electricity running? Why can't you make sure that the trash is getting picked up? Why can't you provide security? And a couple years later, when Hurricane Katrina happened, and I saw the same disaster playing out domestically. I had this like, desire to go back to Iraq and say, look, see, it's not that we were willfully refusing to do these things for you. We're just incompetent. Like We can't make this stuff work out in our own country where we're, like, we can literally drive there. Why would you think that we would be able to uh, do a better job in a, a foreign country across an ocean where we don't speak the language? <laughs> it's not that we hate you. We're just incompetent. Um, it sounds probably pretty cold, but the the similarity was striking. Another thing that occurred to me when the economy collapsed was that the economy in the U.S. is while I was deployed, some of my fellow soldiers thought that the Iraqis were somehow just fundamentally different than Americans, and they would point to the looting as an example of that. And then if you remember after the um, economy in the U.S. went on really hard times, we started seeing stories on the news about um, people looting houses that had been foreclosed on, stripping uh, copper wires, even things like that. And I was like, see, they're they're not so different from us. (laughs) Humans are the same, and they'll do what they need to do to survive when things are falling apart around them. What effect did that have on your perception of what your mission was? I mean, not just your stated mission, but what you told yourself to keep your morale going during your tour. <laughs> I, I don't know that I kept my morale going, <laughs> to Fair be enough. quite quite honest. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really, it was tough. In those early stages, we were told that we were going to go liberate Iraq and then go home. Uh, some of the folks in my unit like believed that so much that they had bought concert tickets for like six months into the deployment, and they were mm. really upset when it became clear we were going to be there a whole year, which blew my mind. Like When I saw my deployment orders and they said 180 days extendable to 365, my thought was, we're here for a year. Um, but 
you know, that was the message kind of sold to all of America, right? Like, we're going to go, we're going to liberate Iraq and, and topple Saddam, and then we're going to head home and they'll be fine. And then uh, that's not what's happened, right? We still have folks in Iraq today, and it's 16 years later. Watching how things were going, watching the dissatisfaction on the part of the Iraqis rise was was really frustrating and, and difficult. I could empathize with them as people, but at the same time, it's really hard to hold on to your empathy when people are actively trying to kill you. So as the insurgency took root, it really definitely made it harder to try to win the hearts and minds, although none of that language was being used yet. We weren't talking about insurgency and counterinsurgency back in late 2003, early 2004 yet. There was just this kind of confusion, like, why are they trying to kill us? We're here to help them. It's one of the things that actually drove me to go to graduate school in international relations, was trying to develop the intellectual framework to understand what went wrong from a foreign policy perspective and how we engaged in Iraq. I want to jump back really quickly to the time during the initial invasion and and your place in it, because this is during the time when a lot of women were not sanctioned into particular combat roles. Um, You would end up becoming the most forward deployed female in country during that time. But also it was like you mentioned, the era of the army we have and not the military we want to have. (laughs) And I'm curious if you could talk to us about not only what that was like as a leading female soldier, but also kind of dealing with that junkyard mentality of welding things together to make it work. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Most forward deployed um, female soldier with conventional forces is how my um, platoon sergeant very carefully put it at the time. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I took part of the initial invasion of Iraq back in 2003. And under the regulations at the time, women were not authorized in direct ground combat arms jobs or units. This was also the era of you go to war with the army you have. We didn't have enough equipment to go around. So I was not issued plates for my flak vest. That said, there also were not enough Arabic speakers to go around. So I ended up going out on combat foot patrols with the infantry in Baghdad. And In many ways, that was the most rewarding part of my entire military experience, certainly of my deployment, getting to support the combat arms guys as they did their job and seeing the immediate result of me being there and able to support the mission. And all without Um, body armor. Right. After after a few times, we realized that probably I should have some. So when we leave uh, to head out, I'd take some plates from somebody who was staying staying behind. Yeah, that was probably suboptimal at the time. Uh, also, I hadn't gotten the type of training that they had and didn't necessarily understand their, their language or their tactics. To me, it was one of the clearest arguments for why we needed to change that policy because there was an operational need for me to be there. So I should have been able to just be assigned to that unit to meet that need from the beginning instead of being informally attached to the unit where they needed me to be. It also, much later, drove home to me the importance of command climate and what a difference commanders can make. So the unit that I went out with a lot in Baghdad, their company commander treated me with respect and professionalism and valued me for how I made a difference in the mission. And whenever I bumped into those guys later, they would say, hey, you are a linguist in Baghdad. Whereas some of the other units that we'd been attached to, when I would bump into them, they'd say, oh, hey, you were that chick that was with us in Najaf, right? So they saw me as uh, just a woman as opposed to the guys that I'd translated for who saw me as uh, an asset. And a huge part of that difference was also in how their commander had treated me, the professionalism, dignity, and respect. And I, I think that that has such a huge impact on problems related to sexual harassment and assault in the military. Um, when I was out on the side of the mountain, as the only woman with first um, seven or eight guys and later about 20 guys, I definitely saw sexual harassment tick up 
midway through our deployment. And when just for contextualization, this is post-invasion. Sure. You know, when we were on the side of Sinjar Mountain, past Mosul, past Telafar, about months six through eight is when the, the stress of the deployment really got to a lot of people. We were very isolated, very forward deployed, had not gotten a break for a long time, but the end of the deployment wasn't in sight yet. And I saw at that point, like a, a kind of general breakdown in discipline uh, and professionalism. There was a guy who refused to shave for a couple weeks, another guy who cried and punched himself in the face all night. But at that time is also when the incidents of sexual harassment like really ticked up that I experienced. And it definitely changed the degree to which I felt comfortable around my fellow soldiers and the way that I interacted with them. We all know that, you know, female service members' reputations are just so much more vulnerable than if it were the other way around. Right. One of the other interesting things is that as a member of a minority, I knew all the time that if if I did something wrong, it was seen as reflecting on all other women, whereas if a guy did, it was just reflecting on him as an individual. Uh, so once this kind of crystallized for me out there on the side of the mountain, I became convinced that at that moment in time, in that context, if I were friendly and outgoing and relaxed and acted like myself, that it would be interpreted as an invitation to more than just friendship. I became convinced that the guys out there would see me as either a bitch or a slut, and that if I had to pick between those binaries, I'd rather be a bitch. And so I became much more reserved and, and withdrawn and you know stood a little more on rank. Um, it was isolating and it was lonely. It made me value female friendships much more, but I, I definitely felt um, less connected to the guys that I served with. Not that it was by choice, but I imagine you were kind of thrust into the role of the ambassador to all female service members during this time. I wouldn't say that I that at all. I actually, when I look back, one of my regrets, though I was a little older than a lot of other folks who enlist, um, I was still emotionally immature enough that when I saw other women behaving in ways that I did not think reflected well on us, I did not interpret that as an opportunity for mentoring them. I just would get angry that they were making us look bad. Mm. It's one of my biggest regrets about my time in the military that I did not do more to like reach out and try to bond with and support other women. It was more a response of like, oh, what is wrong with her? And and isolating. I think it's, you know, reasonably common, but I didn't have the schema in which to interpret what was going on and, and respond better. Sure, which makes sense though. I mean there's a lot of communities where in the view of any kind of oppression, there's a sense that we all have to be on our best behavior. <laughs> and also this feeling that it's a zero sum game. Right. Like only one of us is going to make it. So mm. instead of trying to elevate each other, uh, like kind of more fighting for what's seen as, as a limited number of slots. I think that sometimes played into into some of the um, relationships that I saw as well. And, you know, until we can really shift that thinking and realize that we can all succeed better if we support one another more. Uh, you know, we're not going to succeed as much as a, as a whole community until we break past that. And coming will be right back after this. KPBS On Demand is supported by Republic Services, providing recycling and waste solutions in San Diego for decades. Californians will soon be required to recycle organic waste. Republic Services will divert those organics away from landfills back into the community for composting use. Learn more at republicservices.com slash San Diego County CA. Welcome back to Incoming, where we're speaking today with author and Army veteran Kayla Williams. My name is Kayla Williams, and I'm reading a selection from Love My Rifle More Than You. Jimmy the Iceman has arrived. Are we glad to see him? No one knows his real name or how he first found out we're up here, but everyone calls him Jimmy the Iceman. The Iceman part is easy. Jimmy brings us slabs of ice he buys down in the village. Jimmy's probably Kurdish, maybe Yazidi, we don't know that either. We also don't know where Jimmy came from, probably some smart-ass soldier's sense of humor that stuck. Anyway, Jimmy is an awesome guy who has quickly and efficiently mastered the skills of the marketplace. We respect this about him. We respect how quickly he has found a market and how he knows immediately how to exploit it. The arrangement goes something like this. First, Jimmy hires a taxi for the whole day for $5. 
He then loads the taxi with consumer goods, anything and everything he thinks he can sell to a captive American military audience stuck out in the godforsaken wilderness with little to do and absolutely nothing on which to spend its money. Jimmy starts with the essentials. There's the ice, of course. By this point in the summer, we're talking temperatures of 100 degrees most days, even in the mountains. Ice is very nice, especially when combined with the cases of soda Jimmy hauls to us in his rented taxi. It's a great combination by the ice, by the soda to chill on the ice. Prices are reasonable, given that Jimmy is the sole vendor for our AO, area of operations. We fully recognize that Jimmy is pulling in a huge profit margin, but we respect and admire his ingenuity. Big slabs of ice, about two or three feet long, six inches across, that he'd pick up for a quarter. And he'd charge us $3, an amazing markup on all the same stuff we could get way cheaper at base does not appear unreasonable to us under the circumstances. Hey Jimmy, you got that shit we talked about last time? From this basic plan of action, Jimmy gets ambitious, branches out. He begins to take orders. Anything he gained his hands on, he will happily serve as mule. He wants his customers happy, and he works the crowd to make sure folks are satisfied with the service. This means lots of business. Soldiers wanting just about anything you can imagine. Cigarettes, gifts for girlfriends or wives, knives, lighters, soccer jerseys, propane tanks, prayer beads, you name it. Personally, I buy a lot of scarves. Most of it's junk, but we purchase it. Happy to keep Jimmy happy, happy to have something, anything to distract us from the routineness of our routine. The local kids have been bringing us food almost every day since we got to this new site. All sorts of stuff. Two kinds of eggplants, green and purple. Green peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, potatoes, onions, eggs. As they're offering to us, they're welcome to the American liberators. They have no sense of what their food should cost, so they start asking for small change. Maybe a dollar, no big deal. We meet their monetary demands with a chuckle. As Jimmy continues his trips up the mountain with a taxi load of goodies, though, the children grow bolder, wanting more money for their product. And then they begin to jack up the prices. $2 for a bag of vegetables, then $3, $5, and upward, testing out what the market will bear. Some of the guys get pissed. They start saying things you'd rather not hear them say. But it's not like we all don't have similar thoughts at one time or another. Get these f***ing locals away from me, or I'm tired of them asking me for water, or I'm tired of them asking me for money, or I don't want to deal with these f***ing people. And you understand this attitude after a while. After all, these kids are always underfoot, always wanting something. And am I really going to fork over five bucks for some damn eggplants the size of my fist? Finally, we refuse to deal with them, and the situation normalizes. Someone speaks to the kids, settles them down. So you can't help but take note of how fast the free market has taken root out here in the Kurdish mountains. Jimmy the Iceman's a real character. I love this guy, and he provides some memorable moments. Like the time he brings us Osama bin Lighters. Picture this, a butane lighter with the image of Osama bin Laden and the Twin Towers in New York City. There's a plane flying into the Twin Towers and a little red light, and when you press down, the light glows red. It's an instant classic. Every soldier wants one. It's gruesome and morbid, but it also reminds us of where we are and why. Or at least what our fearless leaders wanted us to think about why we're here. We all knew there was no connection between the war in Iraq and 9-11. We talked about it all the time. Or how about the lighter shaped like a heart, and it has the faces of both George W. Bush and Saddam Hussein, and the top of the lighter is a fighter plane? Very strange. Made in China. What's up with that? I love this about Jimmy, that he does this. It's capitalism in its purest form. Sometimes, though, Jimmy's entrepreneurial spirit goes a little too far, and we have to set some boundaries. Or at least I do. No, Jimmy, I'm telling him for the umpteenth time. I do not need dresses. I do not need skirts. Skirts for you, Jimmy says in surprisingly good English, pushing a stack of fabrics closer to make sure I'm understanding that this is a special deal he wishes to make. No one else. You. No, Jimmy, I say thank you for, um, your interest. Thank you, but no. But who else? He smiles. But he's also disappointed, I can tell. Who else will wear such things here? He gestures to all the guys at the site. I'm the only woman. I don't know, I say. I haven't asked you to bring me clothes. Look, Jimmy, I try to explain. Thank you for your interest and the effort, but I'm not allowed to wear anything but my uniform. I point to my uniform. 
I try to make this the point, as if I too am disappointed that I'm not going to be able to model these clothes which are in fact beyond hideous. Their bright array of mismatched colors defies easy characterization. Jimmy is not easily dissuaded. He relents, but then the next time he taxis up to us, he tries again. Same dresses, same skirts. On another occasion, Jimmy wants to know how much we make as soldiers here in Iraq working for the U.S. military. This is not a simple matter to explain to a man who must consider the $50 he might make on a good day selling ice and soda to 20 Americans in the Sinjar Mountains a small fortune. So I try to make it make sense in a way I hope he can grasp. $2,000 a month, I began, and I see his eyes grow large with wonder. But there are a lot of costs involved. Costs? Expenses back home. We have many things for which we must continue to pay, even though we're living here. Like, for example, I own a house in America and I have a mortgage. That's $600 a month right there for the next 30 years. And I own a new car. That's $300 a month for the next five years. Jimmy's quiet calculating these expenses. And it's all true. I am underpaid. Soldiers my rank and below with dependents can qualify for food stamps. But I'm hardly done. And there are other things. Heat for the winter and electricity and home insurance and car insurance. Jimmy's looking increasingly somber, studying me carefully as I itemize the costs of an ordinary American life. I just want you to understand, it's expensive. I'm on a roll. I'm almost convincing myself. We make a lot of money by the standards here. But it's expensive and there's more. Food, telephone, he interrupts. Yes, yes, I say. He gets it. Take it, please. He's holding a can of soda out to me. For you, please, no cost. Free soda. It's on me. Jimmy the Iceman, whose impoverished people have suffered for centuries at the hands of one oppressor or another, has taken pity on my small salary. He insists, pressing the soda gently into my hands. Could you tell us a little bit about what re-entry was like for you? Sure. So I came home in 2004, and it really seemed like most of the country was not fully aware that we were still at war. Certainly, folks had no understanding of what women were experiencing as part of today's military. So I had folks ask if I was allowed to carry a gun since I'm just a girl. And other people asked if I was in the infantry, which was still not authorized under policy. And that sense of um, invisibility and being not understood at all is one of the things that drove me to write my first book. I wanted to provide a more nuanced and richer depiction of what today's military women were experiencing to give you know some of that context that people lacked. We've seen and heard stories of what men experience at war going back, you know, at least to the Odyssey and the Iliad, right? But mm-hmm. the story of what women are experiencing at war is one that most uh, most Americans are, were just not familiar with in 2004. And I wonder if you see that literary landscape changing now to being more diverse and reflective of the entire services experience or where it's going from here? It's a great question. And, you know, yeah, this first crop of books that came out from our era of conflicts, mine was among the first. It was certainly the first by a woman. And then we saw some of the more literary works come out later. Right. So like Phil Cly, whose book won the National Book Award, that was, uh, you know, that did not come out in 2005. And (laughs) you you see more of these folks who have, you know, gone through MFA programs and really worked on their craft. Whereas some of the earlier ones that came out were maybe developed by folks who had been blogging while they were downrange in this really different type of chronicle. I've been incredibly excited to see a veritable explosion of works by women getting published now. So a couple months ago at CNAS, where I work today, we hosted a panel discussion with four women veteran authors who have all been published in the past year. I mean, 
practically brought me to tears when I thought about how it, when my book came out, it was like the woman uh, on all these panels to be able to host a panel with four women was just incredibly rewarding. And I'm so thrilled that I'm in a position now where I can help elevate these other voices and amplify more diverse voices, which is what the space really needs to get a sense of, of the full range of human experience of those that, that we're sending to war for our country. Well, a question I also wanted to ask you, and this is just kind of something that's been on my mind a lot. You know, my mom, who's a baby boomer, says that she'd rather be shot in the face and do what I do for a living, stand up in front of people and tell, <laughs> you know, truths. And, you know, my little pet theory, which I can never prove, is that we were raised in the shadow of that silence and we wanted to find out what it was. And that's what motivated a lot of us to go overseas. But I wanted to get your take on, like, what do you think has culturally shifted in the military or in societies in general that just makes us so much more open and chatty and wanting to connect and not at a VFW hall drinking at seven in the morning as much as we might be? Good question. And I'm not sure. I will push back on your theory a little bit because I think the Vietnam era guys grew up in the shadow of World War II with the same amount of stoicism and silence, if not more. Right. And it was still a challenge for them, though they they are the ones I think who helped pave the way for us by pushing for recognition of PTSD, pushing for vet centers where they could go and and talk about their experiences. Uh, I think that 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 paved the way for us to deal with PTSD. When it comes to our willingness to talk about our feelings and our experiences, that seems like a broader shift throughout the culture, right? And now we even have we have this willingness to divulge everything about ourselves on social media, not just service members, but kind of, you know, everyone right. in the in the country. And in, in um, real time. Yeah. <laughs> in real time. Right. I also do still see a reluctance on the part of many service members to talk about their their feelings and show their vulnerability and a sense that civilians are not going to understand and then rage that the civilians don't understand. And I, I think we do have an obligation to tell our stories so that we can help bridge that gap. I have no idea what has been the driving factor behind the this this broader cultural shift where folks are willing more willing to to share all kinds of details about the minutia of their lives and their their vulnerabilities. So as we go into the the final stretch, uh, last two questions. The first is outward facing. If what would you, <clears throat> if you could only like focus on one thought or one thing or one area? that you wish civilians had a better grasp on about who their military is? What do I wish civilians had a better grasp on about who their military is? I wish civilians better understood that the U.S. military is roughly, broadly representative of society, except by gender. Uh, so. In, in broad sweeps, the military does represent the ethnic breakdown of the U.S. Gender, not at all. 85% of the force, roughly, is still male and only 15% female. And when it comes to like the socioeconomic breakdown, the richest Americans and the poorest Americans are underrepresented. And folks still seem to believe that the military recruits from among the poor, and that's just not true anymore. The folks who are most poor in America are least likely to meet the standards to get into the military. Only one in four Americans qualifies for military service today. The rest are disqualified due to obesity, lack of high school education, or uh, criminal records. Those are the primary three disqualifiers. So the communities that are hardest hit by poverty are most likely to be hard hit by those factors as well. So the military is really recruiting from the same pool that college recruiters are recruiting from. And that's something I really wish that civilians better understood, that the military is not made up of people who are so stupid or so poor that they have no other options in life. That's not the reality at all. We'll be right back with Kayla Williams after this. You're listening to Incoming. Welcome back to Incoming with our guest today, Kayla Williams, author of Love My Rifle More Than You and Plenty of Time When We Get Home.
My name is Kayla Williams, and I'll be reading a selection from my first book, Love My Rifle More Than You, Young and Female in the U.S. Army. Mainly, if we came across locals, the locals were Yazidis. I continued to be overwhelmed by their amazing generosity. Their Arabic was not great, and whatever Kurdish we spoke was limited to a few basic phrases, so conversations tended toward the most common of denominators. And after a time, there was a remarkable degree of repetition in these little talks with the Yazidis we met. On one hike, we came to a small Yazidi dwelling in the mountains, and the men practically pulled us over to sit down with them. Matt and Bill and I sat awkwardly around on the ground while the men watched us, and one prepared tea. These were very poor farming people. They grew pomegranates and grapes and some vegetables. The men told us that they stayed there in the summer months. In the winter, they lived in the village below with their families. Then this one local with a handlebar mustache placed three glasses before us, and there weren't enough glasses to go around, so we drank tea while they sat there. They offered us grapes. And then he got out a raw onion that he chopped into quarters and laid the pieces out for us. He then sprinkled some coarsely ground salt on a plate and also set down another large piece of flat bread. We looked at one another, then down at the raw onion slices, and then again at one another. Eat, the man said in Arabic. I said, it's a raw onion. Eat, eat. The man was not understanding our hesitation. It's a raw onion, I repeated. Yes, you dip it in the salt and eat it with bread. The guys were really not sure about this. You're kidding me, one of them said. No, eat it. So we ate it to be polite. And it wasn't that bad, though nothing I would serve as an appetizer back home. Then, as always, I had the obligatory conversation I had with all the Yazidis. No matter what, no matter when, it was always the same conversation. It went something like this. We are Yazidis, the Yazidi man began. Yes, I'd heard this before and knew precisely where it was heading. Yes, I know, you are Yazidis. Do you know of the Yazidis in America? No, I would be feeling weary already. No, nobody in America has heard of the Yazidis. Will you tell the Americans about us? Yes, I will do my best. We are not Muslims. I know, I got it. You're not Muslims, you're Yazidis. We are like Jews, and we are like Christians, but we are not like Muslims. Yes, I know. Yes, everyone here told me the same thing. Yes, I've got it. We love Americans, because you hate Muslims, and we hate Muslims too. So that's why we love Americans, and we want America to stay here forever. You or Israel, to protect us from the Muslims, because they cut down our fig trees and stole our women. Okay, I did not want to start a debate here or an argument, but I wanted to be clear. We don't hate Muslims, I began. That's really, um, not the point. We don't hate any religion, and we're here so that you can have a democracy, and so you can have freedom. And in a democracy, everybody gets to help decide how to run the government and how to run the country. And even the Yazidis can help. You can participate in the new government under a democracy because you're gonna have freedom. And that's why we're here, to help establish freedom and democracy. And then we're going to leave. No, no. He waved away this speech as if it was foolish or irrelevant. And he spoke now as if to someone who was a trifle dense. No, it will never work. This would never happen. Americans have to stay here forever, he paused. Or Israel. Israel is never going to come. Now it was my turn to make a point that seemed too obvious to mention. Let me tell you, Israel will never be here. They will never be in Iraq. They will never establish anything here. I promise you, they're not coming. Somehow, these conversations were on a tape loop, and it began again at the beginning. We are like Christians. We are like Jews. We hate the Muslims, like you. No, we, we don't hate the Muslims. Will you please tell Mr. Bush about the Yazidis? I guess the thinking here was that I was not getting it, so they might as well go right to the top and get the president involved since this soldier was not grasping the issues. I don't know him. I said this as politely as I could. Will you write him a letter? Will you call him? Will you tell Mr. Bush? Does Mr. Bush know about the Yazidis? I don't know what Mr. Bush knows about the Yazidis. Tell Mr. Bush, tell Mr. Bush about the Yazidi people because we are good people. Yes, you are. You are good people. You're generous and kind and friendly people. You give me food all the time. You're very nice. You're very kind. I love the Yazidis. Tell Mr. Bush. Yeah, all right. Yes, I'm going to write Mr. Bush a letter and tell him how great you are. Thank you. Thank you. 
After our little picnic, we took pictures of the men and their donkey. And then this guy with the handlebar mustache, he was about 50 years old, led us back up the mountain. And he scampered up the mountain in plastic sandals like a goddamn gazelle. Here we were, thinking we're badass army soldiers, but we couldn't keep up. And the very next time I met a Yazidi, we had almost the identical conversation all over again, word for word. You know, we've all watched on the media, or hopefully we've been watching on the media in the last few years, as, as the Yazidi people have really suffered at the hands of ISIS, and you were able to, maybe not being embedded is the right word, but being close to that community in the days after the fall of Baghdad. And I would want your perspective on what you saw coming, what you heard, what you feel in the aftermath of that. When I was in Iraq and talked to the Yazidi people, one of the things that just it stuck with me is they were so convinced of how they would suffer as a minority in the new future of Iraq. And I'm not completely ignorant. I know that we have a pretty terrible history of dealing with minority populations in the U.S. And so I felt even at the time kind of disingenuous saying like, oh, it's going to be great for you under democracy. Like, we didn't have a civil war or anything. We didn't have to have a civil rights movement to deal with our own minority population. It's going to be great for you. But, you know, coming home and then watching the news has been excruciating to see the the warnings come true. I was still working in the intel community when, at the time, the second largest terrorist attack in world history took place, and it was of Yazidis in in Sinjar. You know, hundreds and hundreds of people died, and they warned us that the Muslims would steal their women was the way that they phrased it at the time. And then to see on the news about Yazidi women who are sex slaves to ISIS has been... Um, just devastating to me in terms of wishing that I had been able to do more, wondering what else I could have done. I mean, I I tried everywhere that I went to talk about the Yazidi people, um, but we just, as a country, we we failed in terms of, of being able to protect this tiny minority population in the aftermath of our invasion. And wrestling with our moral culpability for that is something that I'll probably be doing for the rest of my life. Of course, you know, my angst over it is absolutely nothing in comparison to the experiences that these people have actually had. But, you know, my own my own guilt and and, and struggles with what our national moral obligation should have been uh, yeah, it's something that I, I I still have problems dealing with. Well, that leads us to our final question that we always like to ask. If you were to encounter a service member who is on their way out in the next days, weeks, months, and you could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? My advice to people who are approaching their transition out of the military would be to find new ways to serve preferably as part of a community. So one of the things that a lot of folks that I know who served in the military um, talk about is missing the sense of purpose that they had in the military. It's meaningful to dedicate your life to something bigger than yourself and to feel a a sense that you have a, a mission. There are some newer veteran-serving nonprofits like Team Rubicon and and uh, the Mission Continues that explicitly try to get uh, veterans involved in, in new types of service. Traditional VSOs as well have uh, lots of volunteer opportunities. And even if you you know have serious physical limitations due to your injuries, you can find some way to make a difference. Uh, just saw an article about a need at a local hospital for people to cuddle newborn infants who are bo- born addicted to opiates. So, you know, go and go and cuddle babies that need that that touch, that support. Um, and I do think that if possible, doing that type of community service and continuing to find a purpose in serving uh, the nation and, and your community, doing that with other people 
makes it better for for you and for them. It amplifies the benefits for for all involved. The sense of isolation that a lot of folks feel uh, can be alleviated by spending time around other vets and getting reintegrated into your broader community. Sebastian Younger talks about this in Tribe, right? Like the benefit that a lot of us get when we're downrange from being around a small, tight-knit group of people. So finding your, your tribe when you come home, I think, can be really meaningful. I think it can be particularly important for women veterans, since many of us feel uh, alienated from civilian women, but also don't always feel completely welcome among male veterans. So finding other women vets who understand the complexities of our experiences can be incredibly helpful and supportive. That's been a key part of my own recovery and reintegration is continuing to serve, trying to make the world a better place for those coming home after me and in general, and doing so among a community of my peers. Kayla Williams, thank you so much for being on Incoming. We hope everybody reads your books and look forward to what's to come. That's our show with the wonderful Kayla Williams. She has more writing on the way, which we'll be sure to have her back for once it's out on bookshelves. But don't hesitate to buy the two that are out right now. Love My Rifle More Than You and Plenty of Time When We Get Home. We also recorded Kayla performing too many stories for one little hour-long show. So be sure to subscribe to the Incoming Podcast for bonus content from this and other episodes when we drop it. I also have to mention that we did not have time in this little one-hour episode to include the part of our interview with Kayla where we talked about all of the great veteran writing coming out right now by women. She was kind enough, though, to introduce me to several of them by email, and we're looking forward to having them as guests on our show very soon. The publishing world, as you may have noticed, is still very much white and male, so we're going to make every effort here on Incoming to make sure the stories of service members you hear are reflective of how diverse our military actually is. So stay tuned. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Our editor is Jennifer Pepperpot Corley. At KPBS, Kurt Conan is a radio production manager. Emily Jankowski is technical director. Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator. Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager. And John Decker is director of programming. Music for Kayla Williams' stories provided by the artists Blue Dot Sessions and Fatal Injection. Incoming is made possible by the KPBS Explorer Fund, the California Arts Council's Veterans Initiative in the Arts, the City of San Diego's Commission for Arts and Culture, and the supporting members of So Say We All. You can find us on the web and learn more at sosayweallonline.com. Please subscribe to Incoming, drop us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or wherever else you choose to do your podcasting. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you by email at info at sosayweallonline.com. Thanks for listening, y'all. Let's talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort on 4,000 private acres in the mountains near San Diego. Family-owned since 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers mindfulness and fitness vacations featuring farm-fresh cuisine. RanchoLaPuerta.com.